1: This is Up to Date on KCUR 89.3. I'm Steve Kraske. There are only four people in the entire world who hold the twin titles of Master of Wine and Master Sommelier, and Kansas City's Doug Frost is one of them. And hey, he's also a Master of Spirits, as bestowed by the Wine Spectator, and he's an author, too. What doesn't he do? When Doug is in the house, it's the holiday, so we're always excited to have him. Doug has a gift for talking about the oftentimes snooty subject of wine in a very down-to-earth way. These days, he's also owner of the Echo Lands Winery in the Walla Walla Valley of Washington State and Oregon. And if our listeners want to join our conversation with any kind of question about anything you can drink that has alcohol in it, Doug is your guy. 816-235-2888 is our number. Again, 816-235-2888. And Doug joins us now. Welcome back. Thank you, Always Steve. happy to hear you, because when, when I see you, here you are. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's holiday time. I, b- I bring bottles. You bring you know, bottles. I try to bring bottles like and to glasses. See you here? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, let's start with Echoland, your winery out west. How was the harvest this year? You know, it was a it was a great
2: harvest. Um, things went really really well, and and things have been rough and bumpy for the last five years or so. Um, our first vintage was 2018, and I was fond of saying at the time that it was the kind of uh, vintage that even an idiot could make good wine, mm. and he did. Um, so you know, 2023 20, <laughs> was kind of the same thing. Again, it was like one of those, hey, if we can't do some good this year, we are bozos. Mm-hmm. So um, it went really, really well. And and, and it's up and down uh, the coast, even California that, that struggled with a late harvest and people were really worried what they ended up with is super exciting. So, no, I think the U.S. wines in, in 23 are all going to be just stellar. And they were good because why? I mean... Well, it's, it's a good question. Certainly in California, my, my view is that it, it was this long coolish growing season. So you ve- developed flavors and not necessarily developed um, high sugars so they, you know, hopefully aren't high-alcohol wines, which I think a lot of us beer uh, uh, away from these days. I, I, I certainly some of the stuff I brought are are uh, lower-alcohol wines in general because I I think a lot of people like those sorts of wines in Oregon and Washington. We just had um, kind of remarkable color to the wines, and and I can't explain that. I, I honestly talked to my friends who make Pinot Noir in Oregon, those of us who were making wine in Washington State, and we all just stared at the at the wines as they were <laughs> fermenting. Huh. scratching our heads going what's with the color on these they're just so dark and wow. and and they feel dark and rich and and intense um it it just you know nature nature handed us a good one
1: you know for so many years you have touted uh the wines from Kansas and Missouri so when you decided to buy your own winery why the state of Washington well i i, I feel like um, well, here's the easy answer is
2: it's harder to make good wine in Kansas and Missouri than it is in Washington, Oregon, California, because, it, because of the weather. We we are a very difficult climate for, for uh, grape growing at least for the, uh, the typical, the traditional grapes that people think of like Cabernet and Chardonnay and, and Merlot and such. Um, we, you know, our winters are bloody cold and then we'll have these warm spells that are crazy where the plant will get confused and the sap will start to rise and then the temperature drops into the low teens or below and the sap will freeze and the plant will burst and, and you know, frankly, um, what happened in 23 in the Midwest is, is sort of typical. We had a very rough uh, spring. We had a rough summer. Uh, a lot of people's, uh, uh, you know, yields are much lower than normal in Kansas and Missouri. And and so, frankly, I I looked at it and said, I want to try to make... The, uh, honestly, I, I wanted to try to make a wine that reminded me of some of the traditional wines of Europe in the Walla Walla Valley in a place where I felt like people didn't have necessarily that vision. I wanted yeah. to try to grow grapes there that people, in, in my view, in the valley really weren't focused upon. And, and I just saw an opportunity. And and I'll, uh, finally, I had uh, sort of the patriarch of, of Walla Walla Valley, a wonderful man named Norm McKibben tell me, hey, I want you to come up here, pick a piece of my land out, and and we'll figure something out. And it was just, you know, it was one of those crazy opportunities. It's never going to happen again. Mm -hmm. And and he let me pick out a beautiful piece of property. And since then, my business partner and I, Brad Bergman, uh, we found more land that we think is super special. So I just felt like this was a once in a lifetime opportunity.
1: You're saying how difficult it is to make good wine in Kansas and Missouri. Is that going to be affected or is that going to change because of global climate change? Well, I, th- I think global uh climate change is all about extremes getting more extreme
2: and so yeah, it's going to be more difficult. Having oh, more difficult that, not easier. Yeah, I yeah. think it's it's going to be more difficult. Um having said that, there are amazing winemakers around here. I always have to give a, a shout out to to Michelle Meyer at at Holyfield. She's been making delicious wines not far from Kansas City, you know, in Basore for a decade and a half and her, her her father just passed away, and and uh, it's it's an amazing place. You know, I think Holyfield deserves a shout out, and and there are plenty of others, needless
1: to say. Yeah. how close can you come at this point in your life, either at your winery or at Holyfield for that matter? Can you th- draw a distinction when you sample a wine from vintage twenty twenty three versus twenty twenty versus twenty sixteen?
2: Yeah, I think so. I wow. I, I think people um, are making the very best wines they can, which is to say, but. Um, ideally the wines are therefore uh, affected and and marked by the the character of the season the character of the There's a
1: distinctiveness to one year versus the next in, in someone like it, it, in your my palette. view yeah. you know
2: in my view that's ideal um, now when you make wine at a vast scale, when you're making tens and hundreds of thousands of cases of wine, your charge is to not do that. Your charge is to smooth out the edges and to make the wine very consistent. And and the thing I love about wine is this. it's not Coca-Cola, it's not milk, it's different from year to year, it's different from place to place, and and that's the part I want to celebrate. That's the part to me that's exciting. How does a good winemaker smooth out the
1: edges, to use your term?
2: Well, I I think by blending. Blending is your is your best opportunity. A lot of people uh, Will You're allowed to blend different vintages together um, at, and you can make a non-vintage blend, which sometimes people will do. You're allowed to blend like 5% of another vintage into to your vintage and then put the vintage date on there. That can help smooth things out picking from different places. The Australians famously, uh, it, one of the uh, characteristics, I think, of traditional Australian wine was that they would pick wines from many different places and they could adjust the the wine, as it were, um, with the harvest by being able to sometimes pick wines from a thousand miles apart and then blend them together to hit wow. that particular uh, price point they wanted to hit and that particular flavor characteristic they wanted to hit. Now, there are plenty of very small wineries now in Australia that are doing you know, what I'm describing of, of riding
1: the wave year to year and letting harvest be the dominant characteristic of any particular wine. Doug Frost, master of wine, is my guest, and we're open for business here this morning. If you have questions for him on what pairing Make sense at holiday time, what you might want to serve, anything's on the table when Doug Frost is here with us. 816-235-2888 is our number. How much concern is there in your industry about global climate change? I mean, are you everyone fretting about it? Is it is it changing lots of stuff, or what are you what are you picking up? it, it is uh uh, the the
2: primary characteristic, uh, you know, in any convention is that people are going to bring it up in as many different ways as possible because it's our challenge. We, we're an agricultural product, so what uh, the weather does uh, affects us deeply, and and so. Yeah, everybody. It doesn't matter where you are. Everybody talks about it. Everybody's trying to adjust to it. For instance, in Bordeaux, I mean, as traditional hidebound places we can talk about for wine production, there are six new grapes that have now been legalized there, including the most famous Spanish white grape, Albariño, is now legal to grow in Bordeaux. That's kind of crazy, but, but it's just also because of the
1: weather. Just changing. because of the
2: weather change, yeah. it's it's like okay, Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon, and and to a lesser degree, a grape called Muscadelle are, are maybe not going to make a differentiated or the kind of wine that we want to make. We need to make adjustments. Hey, let's try this Albarino thing. It adjusts better to to wet conditions. It adjusts better to to. Um, you know theoretically to extremes in weather. i am not sure Alberino is the is the answer there, but the minute Alberino was legalized in Bordeaux was that you know for me, kind of that headline of, okay, this is it. Wow. We obviously wow. really, as an industry, are saying
1: we're not things are not going to be the same. You know, at Echolands, again, your winery out west, you've hired a new general manager and winemaker this summer. His name is Brian R- R- Rudden. And you've also hired uh, a director of hospitality, Jenna Bicknell. Yes. You're staffing up. Yeah, this we is are. getting serious.
2: Yeah, we we plan to open the new winery uh, sometime at the end of March. Um, and, and so, yeah, it, it's time to staff up. We've got a facilities manager now. And uh, Ross comes on board uh, January 1st. I can't wait for him to start because, <laughs> yeah. you know, so the, the, the thing is, I know nothing about building a winery. Thank God, you know, my, my uh, business partner does know something about building a winery. And, and uh, it, it, it's, I, I'm intimidated by the whole thing. The winery itself is like 27,000 square feet. We have a, 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 a storage facility that's 6,000 square feet that's wow. down the hill from it. We're planting uh, about 35 acres over the next 24 months all around the vineyard. And we already have 27 acres planted uh, on the Oregon side. So it's it's growing into a, a larger project than I was uh, than I had envisioned. Well, Brian is your new winemaker. Why do you need a winemaker? I thought that's what you could do. No, I am definitely no one needs me to make wine. I. I Participate in all the decisions, but the the worst thing in the world is a part-time winemaker. I live here in Kansas City, so I go back and forth between Casey and Walla Walla a lot. But wine is the sort of thing that you need to visit barrels sometimes daily. You need to visit fermenters definitely daily when they're working. You're living there and you're living with them, and you're you're there. You know, if not 24 hours a day, pretty damn close during harvest. And harvest goes on for five, six, seven weeks, depending upon the the year. So uh, no, nobody needs uh, me to. Come kind of, you know, saunter in and say, I declare this wine, you know, completely ready.
1: I- You've said that th- this, the harvest, the point of actually beginning to pick grapes, that's a moment. That's a real big moment for a winery, right? Because you got to pick the right moment to start. And what goes into that decision? It's a... It's a
2: uh, an aesthetic decision, but a practical decision as well. Um, I, I certainly remember, the, the as crazy as this sounds, The 1981 and 1982 vintage uh, in Bordeaux. 82 is famously like the greatest vintage of all time. 81 was sort of a disaster. And the simple answer behind why one was great and one was not was not the weather. It was capacity. They didn't have enough tank capacity. 81 came rolling in the door and nobody was ready. 82, they built up, they were ready. So one of the you know unfortunate practicalities is do I have a place to put these grapes? Do, you know, am I going to be right. able to get them into a fermenter? Um, right. So that's a that's a juggling act. But ideally you're looking for those grapes to be at just the right amount of sugar, just the right amount of acidity, just the right uh, character of balance, just the right amount of what we call phenolics or that, that bitter, astringent, dusty substance. Right. Uh, and, and you want all those pieces in play. And then you have to kind of look down the road and pretend to know what's it going to be like when it's done fermenting? What's it going to be then like after I stick it in a barrel for two years or a year yeah. and a half, and and so there's a lot of, uh, of of you know sort of prognosticating, but it's it's more like blind dart throwing at times. Yeah. Uh, but you learn the site and you learn what tends to happen, and then nature throws the the curveball at you uh, to say, yeah, everything you thought you knew, you don't know anymore. <laughs> so yeah, well, that's winemaking.
1: <laughs> well, let's give our, our listeners some practical advice here. Lots of folks are making decisions probably today about what they're going to be serving at uh, for big holiday meals coming up over the next few days. How do you approach that decision? I love your attitude about all this, by the way. Maybe we should repeat it, which is, it doesn't. You pick what you want to drink, and don't worry about what goes well with what. And exactly, you just go for if it. you yeah. like
2: it, drink it. Drink if you it, don't yeah. like it, I ask, I beseech you, stop drinking yeah. it. Drink something you like, for God's sake. <laughs> right. and, and I think the same is true for, for you know having guests over. It really comes down to I, I do that myself. Hey, what do you, what do you feel like drinking? And of course, you know, people coming to my house are always like, Oh, you've got everything. I don't care, you know, and I'm like, you, but you do care. Yeah. So, and, and so we have some friends, uh, my sister-in-law indeed, when she and my, my brother, uh, come over and, and, and they live in Florida. So we'll, we see them, you know, uh, only occasionally, i got to stock up on beer because the woman is serious about beer. So I wow. got to have good beer there. I got to have interesting beer there. It's certainly local, interesting beer. Um, and and then, you know, I actually snuck in, I hope no one hates me for this. I snuck in a non-alcohol I was going to ask you about that. Why did you bring that? Because uh, I think it's really tasty. Mm-hmm. And I think all of us uh, need to have uh, non-alcohol options aside from, oh, I've got a Perrier here. I mean, you know, that's great, but there's just so many other things to, to, to drink and it, indeed, um, I, I to me the mark of an interesting bar or restaurant is when they actually have options for for non-alcohol That's drinks. But it, it you know it may be that you don't drink at all. It may be that you're not drinking tonight. For me, it's like I just need to pace myself. I right. I have a friend, the the, the wonderful. Uh, genius bartender, a guy named John Lemaire, who passed away a couple of years ago. And he had, his favorite drink was called a pace car. And a pace car was basically soda, a little bit of bitters, a tiny, you know, a little bit of dry vermouth in there. It looked like a cocktail, throw a lemon on top, but it was basically his pace car. He could pace himself through the wow. evening wow. when everybody else is, you know, starting to have a little too much. John's just sipping something that's like 3% alcohol and and uh, being a responsible human.
1: You're saying a non-alcoholic beer can taste like real beer. I think so.
2: I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty pleased with this one. This one's called Wein So it's a German uh, beer, and and thus far that's the 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 one I thought I would I bring along. The one I've fallen in love with.
1: Yeah. Well, what, what does it taste like? Tell me about it. Why, what, what do you like about it? Well,
2: I think we should probably, we should probably taste it. Taste it. And, it, yeah. and uh, there is no risk involved because it's a non-alcohol beer. But...
1: and Hallie Jackson, uh, one of our producers, if you're listening, come on in because we're gonna start uh, we're gonna start uh, t- t- sampling here. I guess is the way to. Best describe it, and here comes the Elizabeth. You're gonna take a sip for us, <clears throat> Elizabeth erb Our Carlos, you ready here? Our producer yeah. intern, whose final day is today, is gonna to try some. Carlos Moreno is in here as well, and he's gonna sample this non-alcoholic beer. Yeah, please. Yeah, thank you. Steve's like, don't leave me out. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta. Tell everybody what what they're not describing here.
2: Yeah, so the Stefaner is a kind of an amazing uh, brewery. It's been around oh since the year one the ten. Pardon me, one thousand forty. So um, it's you know almost a thousand years old as a as a uh, brewery. And they've been making this non-alcohol beer for, I don't know, maybe two years now. I discovered it a couple of years ago, at least. And so it's been coming into the U.S. And most everybody is is working with alcohol beverage and and uh, taking the alcohol out through a process called reverse osmosis. I believe that's what they're doing here. Huh. But I believe they brew this to a little higher alcohol level before they uh,
1: strip the alcohol out and uh, has a little more flavor for me that way. Well, here's my reaction. Carlos, yeah. I'll be curious to get yours. I like the aftertaste almost more than the first taste. Yeah, no, I think
3: I agree. T- I mean, first
1: taste is okay. I'm, I'm not wild about it.
3: Yeah. Uh, uh, it, to me, it's very light. It's like drinking, very light. A, a light Pilsner to me is what it reminds me of. Mm-hmm. It's I'm not a big beer drinker, but uh, this is something I think I could engage
1: in quite a bit. Elizabeth, what, what'd you think?
4: It tastes like beer, you know? It doesn't...
1: <laughs> Seems to be a reasonable benchmark
2: we yeah. should reach, eh? You know,
4: it, it's, it doesn't taste like you're not drinking, uh, you know, the real thing, which I think it's delicious.
1: Yeah. Hallie?
0: Yeah, definitely the same. I think uh, I'm not super big on, like, really light beers, but uh, this is, you know, as far as they go, you know, better than, you know, a Bud Light or something like that. <laughs>
1: i wonder what the psychological part of all this is you're drinking beer that doesn't have any alcohol in it because you're expecting to feel something after a little bit of time does is, how does that play into all this? Well, it's,
2: it's an interesting question, and, and and there's been some research done on uh, people's expectations that um, you know when they're drinking a, a a mixed drink, when they're drinking spirits, when they're drinking wine, when they're drinking beer, that people will act differently yes. because they believe <laughs> themselves to be drinking a different drink that creates that di- th- those different char- characteristics. That wine's going to make them a little mellower. That that you know spirits or a cocktails going to make them a little wilder you know it's all of course expectations now i'm not sure how uh, important that kind of research is at the end of the day uh it, it is kind of a simple uh metric you drink too much you will not feel good yeah. <laughs> you know, you'll you feel great at first and eventually you'll feel bad but um i you know it, it's it's one of those things where uh having uh consumed a lot of this particular beer one night as an experiment. It really was right. one of those, I'm going to hang around a bunch of drunk people, but maybe not drunk, but certainly people who are drinking actual alcohol and drink that. And I have to say, it's, it's one of those, having been an alcohol beverage my whole life, it was one of those kind of wake-up calls of yeah, it's not a ton of fun being around people who've been drinking when you're the one who isn't.
1: Yeah. You know, you and I have talked about this any number of times, but I think one of my frustrations with the spirits industry, wine industry in general, is you go to Costco, you go to a, a local store, and you're looking for something different, and the amount of information available to the consumer to make a smart choice or a choice based on something other than the color of the label is fairly limited, and it makes me a little crazy it makes me crazy too i, I we've done
2: as an as a wine industry we've done a, a bad job of helping people understand exactly what's gonna you know happen when they taste that wine and i i think the only frankly the only solution is to let people taste mm-hmm. um let them taste before they buy it's difficult to do in some do many states stores do that Costco not sure doesn't yeah do not that many stores and in many can uh many situations it's illegal you're not allowed to taste uh in a in a store. Um, I, I wish that were different. Uh, I wish the world were scratch-and-sniff labels. Um, you know, I wish we could you, you, actually- the, the law doesn't allow you to drink in a store. It, in many places. Uh, you've got to have a separate license to do that, uh, certainly in Kansas and Missouri. Um, and it's, it can be difficult to, to gain that kind of license. So it's got its
1: challenges. I just don't get why that isn't more common. It doesn't make any sense to me.
2: Alcohol beverage is uh, always treated by some people as, as inherently evil. Yeah,
1: that's right. And it's still that remnant of carry Nation and everything else lingers <laughs> to this day.
2: Yeah, absolutely, okay. it does. They're yeah. still, they're, they're, about almost a third of Americans don't drink at all any alcohol beverage at all. And, and that, you know, can be for very good healthful reasons that um, I, I presume that it is in most cases, but I think we have always had a dysfunctional or, or, in, to some degree, our societies had a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol, that it's all yeah. or nothing. Uh, when uh, responsible, moderate consumption for most people right. is is a, a uh, certainly not... Del- going to have a deleterious effect on your, on your life or your, you know, career or your relationships.
1: You've just poured us something new here. What is it?
2: Yeah. It's time for sparkling wine. I mean, it's okay. that time of year, right? So, um, I actually brought this because this is, uh, it's a nat. It's a, a, a wine actually that we make in, uh, in Walla Walla and pet nat is short for Petit Naturellement or naturel as some people call it. And, and, uh, one of the, I think one of the, uh, uh, surprising effects of not being good at describing wine and telling people what to expect about wine and teaching about wine has been that there's been this n- new thing called the natural wine movement I put quotations around natural because there's really nothing natural natural about wine we interrupt the the flow of grape juice into vinegar and and stick it in a bottle and and make it wine um, when it actually wants to become vinegar so mm-hmm. so we've already kind of interrupted the whole thing but this is a wine that has absolutely no sulfur in it that's what some people identify as uh, the difference between a, quote, natural wine and a, a you know non-natural wine. In, in my mind, it's nonsense, but I felt like before I sit around and criticize some of the natural wine movement producers, because I think some of their wines smell like things I should not describe <laughs> on the radio, um, I wanted to say, okay, I'm going to make one myself. Let's make one without any sulfur, Prove to people you can make a wine that's clean and correct and tastes like wine, and it just doesn't happen to have sulfur in it, and, and it's no problem. So, you know, to me, this is a wine – and actually, this is an older version of the bottle when the the wine is supposed to be consumed within the first year of its production or so. This mm. one's three years old, and it's wow. still holding fine to me. I mean, hope. I hope it's okay. <laughs> For
0: sure. Holly, <Hallie, laughs>
1: what you think of this?
0: Yeah. No, I mean, the first thing that I noticed was, like, it just smells really, like, fruity and good. But then once you taste it, it's actually, like, not too sweet, uh, which which I know I enjoy sometimes,
4: you know sparkling wines can be a little bit too sweet for me
1: yeah that's a big issue with sparkling wines i think elizabeth what what do you think yeah it's
4: very dry um and it it goes down very smoothly too i feel like i could eat this with oysters and, Mm. and caviar on new year's eve you know it's it's just a very uh it's perfect for this time of year
3: Wonderful, yeah. and you know, I thought it was fairly. I thought it was really delicate. I was watching it in the bottle as it was sitting; then it was bubbling, and I thought it was going to be very, very uh, fizzy. And which a lot of people complain about with some champagne, right? Some sparkling wines is too fizzy, but this is very delicate. And it, it, yeah, like Elizabeth said, it goes down very easily. I like this. I enjoyed this. Yeah, the
0: bubbles are really small, which is, yeah. uh, you know, always fun to sort of see when how the carbonation like does its own. Does its thing
2: it it 's true it 's one of those things where carbonate you know carbonated wines are, are making sparkling wine and, and basically all you 're doing is holding the the co2 that 's created from fermentation inside the bottle and not letting it escape into right. the air um, there 's a little bit of a of, of a lack of control that you have and so it 's intriguing to me that it 's got this creamy character because I think it's, it's because we didn't put any sulfur in there that the wine tends to lose uh, some of its bubbles a little sooner than it otherwise might. Like I said, this is three years old. And if this were champagne, three years old is nothing. I, you know, I've had 20 and 30-year-old bottles of champagne that have as much fizz as this one. But I, th- huh. I think the issue is you know, that it's a pet nat, And, and so in general, I tell people, if you see a pet nat, drink it when it's young. Don't you know, like pick up a five-year-old pet nat and expect things to go well.
1: <laughs> we'll be right back. This is Up to Date on 89.3 KCUR. I am Steve Kraske, and we're joined today by Doug Frost, one of only four people in the world who's both a master of wine and a master sommelier. We're talking about things to think about, uh, things to consider as you prepare for holiday meals and holiday of time with friends. You know, one thing I wanted to clear up, Doug, I've been hearing all different sorts of things in the media in recent months about the health benefits or the lack thereof. Of when people drink a daily glass of wine or drink whatever they drink, I'm getting mixed signals. What's the latest thing you're hearing about? <laughs> Are there health benefits to drinking a glass of wine every day? Well, it's believed by some uh, researchers that indeed, you know, researchers
2: that there is a a health benefit associated with moderate alcohol consumption. One of the the vexing issues is what is that? How how much alcohol is moderate? Depends upon your age. It depends upon your size. It depends upon your gender. uh, It depends upon your health and your activity. So there is no number that we can just toss out there and say, "Hey, one glass is good, but a glass and a half is bad." Um, We're we're certainly seeing research of late that call into question this blanket attitude that we had towards alcohol, particularly red wine. That red wine's good for you. Drink a couple of glasses of red wine a day, you're good. And and today, I, I'm not sure many researchers would support that. I think it's mm-hmm. more an issue of you know several glasses a week. Red wine, sure. But then there was this uh, uh, most recent um, uh, article that came out, and the media, of course, picked this up. That. A um, <laughs> and I thought this one was hilarious that a, a cheaper red wine might not be as good for you as a more expensive red wine oh, really? and and that's the one where I you know sneeze and call bull BS you know yeah. it's like come on yeah it, 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 there's a compound called quercetin and we've known for a long time that it seems to have some sort of impact uh, on uh, as an antioxidant I think is the best way to describe it and we've known for a long time that some grapes have more quercetin than others for the record Missouri's state official grape north has a bucket load of quercetin. So does that make Norton the best wine from a health standpoint? I right. don't know. You know, right. as they say, I'm not a doctor. I don't even play one on TV. So um, I, I think the bottom line is we continue to get confusing information about uh, the foods and the drinks that we I consume it regardless it, 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 because we're constantly learning. There's so much we don't understand about the impact of, of food and drink on our, our you know bodies and health. Yeah. You just poured a glass, I think, of Missouri wine. Oh, I'm ready. To You're do ready that. to pour the glass. Yes, of Missouri I'm, wine. I'm pouring. Yeah. It, uh, for me, I mean, I know I said that uh, Norton's the official state grape of Missouri, but Vignol is what I want to drink. Mm-hmm. Vignol. Now, this again, I, I brought this as, as sort of a, a backwards uh, uh, homage to uh, what we're doing with Vignol. This one's... I mean, most of the wines that we grow in the Midwest are going to be better in the first year or two of their production. They're not really intended, in my view, for long aging. Um, Vignol is... Uh, so the you know much the same it's my favorite grape it has this wonderful pineapple character it can be really intriguing this is a relatively dry wine but not a bone dry wine um but it's not meant for aging and yet this one is almost 4 years old and it's still pretty good. I mean, I, I wanted to show it just to say we're still learning what we can do and what we can't do. And and I thought this was really tasty. I didn't know if you all would as well, but I this is from Augusta Augusta Winery in Augusta, Missouri. Um, but virtually everybody making Vignol in Missouri right now is killing it, and and yeah. people in Kansas and Illinois and Nebraska and Iowa. Uh, Elizabeth, what'd you think?
4: The thing that sort of surprised me was the color. Like when looking at it, it's very um, sort of, it's almost amber-ish. Um, and it sort of looks like a, it would be like an oaky, butty, buttery Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. But it it tastes, it's a, it has a little bit of a sweetness to it. Um, yeah. And I, it, it feels like you could almost drink, drink it as like a, almost an aperitif or an after dinner drink. Um, I love it. It's very, very tasty.
0: Doug said pineapple and that's exactly right. That's, you know, just exactly like pineapple.
3: Awesome. Yeah, no, it is a very sweet wine. It's very smooth and it's very sweet. It's not something I would normally drink, but uh, like Elizabeth said, it this is very much a, an after dinner wine. I think.
1: Yeah. Anything else, Hallie? Yeah, okay. So, thumbs up. People seem to like it. Yeah, yeah.
3: I mean, again, it's not something I would normally drink sitting down, just enjoying a bottle of wine, but maybe an after dinner okay. you know, kind of thing to enjoy. Well, may I pour some Pinot Noir,
1: then, to cleanse Noir, the palate? Yeah, there you go. Cool. Stacy from Kansas City, Missouri. Stacy, here I'm with Doug.
4: Hi, Doug. Thanks, guys, for taking my call. You bet. Um, I've I've more or less stopped drinking anything, period, because I feel so terrible for at least 24 hours after, is there a wine that I could drink that even just a glass of that wouldn't give me any hangover effects?
1: That's a great question.
2: Well, I I certainly think um, that the the key is that uh, you know the, the higher alcohol wine, uh, the, the more likely it is to, to leave that impact. So certainly look at the side of the bottle that will tell you precisely how much alcohol there is. Um, and, and and you can also buy non-alcohol wines. There are more and more of those brands in the marketplace. I haven't necessarily fallen in love with any of them yet. That's why I brought this non-alcohol mm-hmm. beer along because I have fallen in love with that one. I, I do huh. taste that one and go, well, there you go. Yeah. Um, but the other uh, issue is one has to be sure to consume for me it's like two glasses of water for every glass of wine um, you really really wow. need you know not only is alcohol a diuretic but uh, essentially you need to, to dilute the effect of, of wine make sure that there's food in your stomach I mean there's a reason why the, the European standard is that you're drinking wine with food not by itself most people don't do that though. no we we yeah. tend to drink wine as a cocktail here mm-hmm. and, and the healthiest way uh, is certainly to put food in your belly it helps slow down the it, the absorption of alcohol and and it makes it far more likely. I, I I certainly always hear from people when they're like, I came back from Europe and the wines there didn't give me a hangover. And I drink here and I always get a hangover. I'm like, well, you know, you were having a good time. You were on right. vacation and you probably were having food the whole time you were having mm-hmm. wine because wine was intended to be poured alongside food. Um, but, it, it, you know, there's just no getting around it for a lot of people. Alcohol has that impact. And so the lower alcohol wine uh, pardon me beverage that you can consume the better the more water what, what is
1: a lower alcohol what number should to stay, should you be looking for so uh
2: the the numbers of uh of, for alcohol content in wine are on the side of the bottle and and kind of the the far end of things it would be sherries and ports and such where we get to 18 20% alcohol wine the low end would be some german uh wines particularly the sweeter versions very uh very few german wines these days are as sweet as we think of them most german wines are dry but when they're uh, sweet, they haven't converted all the alcohol. Pardon me, the sugar to alcohol, so they may be as low as eight percent. Um, so, mm. so that's sort of your range. And when I talk about a low alcohol wine, I'm generally talking about a wine that's thirteen percent or less. The okay. the um, the pet nap that we had is under thirteen percent. It's about twelve and a half percent alcohol. So. That's though it doesn't sound like a huge difference between twelve point five and the kind of typical fifteen percent we're seeing sometimes in California wines. Right. Do the you know do the math. That's a lot more alcohol in a single glass of wine. And if you're now consuming three glasses of wine, that's a heck of a lot more alcohol.
1: Stacy, I hope that helps. Mike <laughs> from Kansas City. Mike, uh, welcome to Up to Date.
5: Thank you. One of my favorite wines is from the Piemonte region in Italy. And it's a agave. Where do I go to find things like that? The wines from Primonte in northern Italy, I think, are some of the best wines in the world. Are there any stores in Kansas City that specialize in Italian wines? from that region
2: oh absolutely i i I think truthfully any of the stores that specialize in wine in the kansas city area will know what you're saying when you say hey i'd like to get it you know i'm I'm looking for agave wine um gavi the grape is the cortese grape i uh yeah i was just in italy about a month and a half ago and i i'm the same way man piemontese wines whether barolo or barbaresco or or dolcetto or this wonderful grape called uh favorita which is uh the um the same grape known as Vermentino and we're planting a couple of acres of Vermentino in Walla Walla Valley in our vineyards, because that's how much I like those, those wow. wines they are really wow. fun. Gavi is, is fun. Cortese. I'm not, I'm not planning on planting that anytime soon myself, but I, yeah, if you call any, I guess that's a good way to put it. If you call any store and you said, I'm looking for, for white wines from the Piedmont region in Italy and they go, I don't know what you're talking about call a different store
1: uh mm. you know because it, it's not that rare it's not that hard to find and those are delicious ones mike have you had success in kansas city asking the questions that doug's talking about
5: well i've never called i just gone and look uh, looked around and costco had for a, a couple of years an excellent selection of gavi wines and then all of a sudden they disappear and so i'm trying to find another store where where i can get that that type of wine uh so i I haven't called i've just gone to different stores and looked and asked
1: sounds like you've got several options mike good luck
5: happy holidays to
1: you you bet let's go to matt from baldwin city kansas matt good morning well good morning this is a really interesting discussion and um I'm particularly intrigued by the name
2: of a chemical quaresin, which probably – I think maybe I'm going to guess has something also to do with oak trees. But here's the other – Doug's shaking his head, yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm wondering if he might know the chemistry involved in this particular ironic weird thing. If I try a non-alcoholic wine or a non-alcoholic beer, within about the second sip, I start getting a headache. I don't know. It is, it's the honest answer. Um, one of the uh, associations that people have made with the the so-called um, wine headache, mm-hmm. and often in the US it's called a red wine headache, is associated yeah. with the use of sulfur. Um, and, and I can say with with certainty that it's been disproven that we know that that sulfur is not an allergen one even though now uh, right. as of last year the EU is now defining sulfur as an, an allergen it's complete nonsense but you know go figure mm-hmm. but there are other compounds um, we call them biogenic amines that occur in wine production that can create um, that that are indeed allergens. So there's a mm. lot we don't know yet. What I would say is that bi- biogenic amines can show up in any fermented product, but they tend to be in pretty small amounts. We we um, you know maybe the great irony of of them all is that tend to be higher in natural wines than in uh, traditional wines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so mm-hmm. um, the, the 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 compounds uh, there's one called tyramine t y r o uh, uh, tyramine, sorry, T-Y-R-A-M-I-N-E, uh, and some others. So biogenic amines, if you're looking to research more about that, that might be the best direction to go. That's mm-hmm. the one where research seems to to uh, believe, researchers t- tend to believe that they're coming up with some, some answers. Yeah. Thank you. I
1: yeah. hope that helps, Matt. Yeah.
2: Oh um, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna go there.
1: <laughs> cool. Maybe we should do this first. You have some eggnog poured here. I do. And you say this is fancy eggnog and it's really good eggnog and I love eggnog, so I wanna get to it. And uh Carlos, don't be – now, pass me a – would oh, you please – come on, Stephen Carlos. I got you over here. Don't just take <laughs>
2: it a all two for yourself. yourself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we did have a little Pinot Noir in between. Um, you know the, the Pinot Noir from Dutton Goldfield is, to me, a real gem. Um, Dutton Goldfield, I've, I've been relying on those guys for a long time. And uh, Pinot Noir – I tend to be a, more of an Oregon Pinot Noir guy. Yeah. But, you know, I've got my favorites, uh, particularly in in California, whether it's Central Coast or or Sonoma Coast. And and this is right up against the coast. So this one's a little cleaner, a little crisper, a little lighter in style. Mm. Again, the alcohols are probably a little bit lower. Um, let's see what, let's see what the alcohol says. Cause this is, you know, I'm guessing off the top of my head and this one, um, it says 14.1. So in the big scheme of things, it's a little bit lower than some of the
1: yeah. others. So that was the Pinot Noir, but you know, I get it. It's eggnog time, isn't it? It is eggnog time. And, uh, I, I just love eggnog and this is good eggnog. Yeah. Carlos, will you know? Oh, that's it? extraordinary eggnog. Uh, and what did you just put on top of it? What did you. Have? So then I
2: grated a little bit of cinnamon stick on yeah, top of it. Yeah, that uh, makes you it... could do nutmeg, you know, allspice, things oh, like that. But no, that makes it pop. I yeah, think, yeah, oh, that I helps the nose a little bit. Creative, I didn't yeah. have my grater with me, so I was using the what, edge of what, my. What, uh, what kind of. What's the brand of the eggnog? So um, this is actually an eggnog that was made by Ryan Magnuson at the restaurant at 1900. Oh. And, you know, his eggnog is, is, to me, pretty damn delicious. So I was like, Ryan, just give me a batch and I'll drop your name, you know. Yeah, oh, <laughs> and. So what he does is he actually he said he actually uses Alton Brown's eggnog recipe. But then the booze that he puts in there, he puts um, a kind of a, a mix of Calvados, which is an apple uh, based brandy made in northern uh, France. And he mixes Calvados with R.L. Seals rum and then uh, a little bit of um, uh, Four Roses bourbon. And now, you know, most recipes would choose mm. the the bourbon or the rum. And I don't know anybody who puts calvados in there, but it adds a little bit of a tanginess to the mm. eggnog, mm. creates greater complexity, and and yet is is to me seamless. I, I you know as I say, as soon as oh, I right. tasted, I was like, I want to write notes about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is this is,
0: a, this is a great eggnog, and I don't like eggnog, so that's really saying something. It's not like too. Sometimes you get like really too thick and creamy eggnog, and, and this just like is not that. It's perfect balance.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a good point about being too thick and creamy. Yeah. I yeah.
4: I, I never really thought that I was an eggnog person until right now. <laughs> well, it's two of you it's, here. Yeah. Wow. You've converted me. This is great. Um, yeah i completely agree with hallie it's very light um i feel like i could just like be cozy near a fire and it, this is like sort of it just tastes like the holidays it 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 is yeah
1: so, so to get this particular eggnog you have to go to the 1900 building
4: yeah yeah uh, ryan uh, yeah. makes that but Which now you know the secret place.
1: you know yeah.
2: now you know the secret it's calvados brandy and rum yeah no i mean i i would i want to go
1: find alton brown's recipe and put this together myself and just see what i can come up with heck yeah Yeah. Wow. That was really, really something. Um, How about this idea, Doug, of what you should serve with any particular wine in terms of how cold it ought to be. The types of glasses. People wonder about these things and sort of have a hard time navigating the, the path forward. Sometimes.
2: Yeah, I, 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 you know, typically make light of of a lot of those issues. That glassware, people fuss over it too much. They do. But I am one of those people that wants a wine glass that has a stem to it because my hand is going to warm the wine up, and I like tend to like my wines cool. And and I'm I'm one of those people that will say, oh, you know, don't fuss so much on the on the temp. Of it, and yet I, I, I remember, and I still to this day feel a bit of shame about it. That I was a judge at the Central Coast uh, Wine Competition in in California, and we had a situation where the cooler broke down, and so all the Chardonnays were room temperature or warmer. And the, the head judge said, we're going to have to like, you know, take a two hour break, try to get them to the right temperature. And I looked at him and I'm like, Bob, I'm a professional. We got professionals here, we can do this. It was a disaster. We, you know, we needed the Chardonnays to be at least cool, if not cold, in order to appreciate them. We weren't, you know, we were suddenly handing right. out bronzes and no awards, like we knew what we were doing. Wow. And it was, it really was, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm ashamed of that moment because I should have immediately stopped and said, stop the competition
1: chill these wines properly. I'm not getting it. Mm-hmm. Well, when you say that, people are thinking, well, they do have to serve te- uh, wines at a certain temperature. Uh, well, is a refrigerator okay for most of these things? A refrigerator is great. Most of the time I tell people, if you're going to serve a red
2: wine, stick it in the fridge for a half an hour, take it out and serve it. If you're going to serve a white wine, leave it in the fridge, take it out a half an hour before you're going to serve it and serve it. That You don't have to do that. With sparkling wine, you can leave it in the, the fridge the, the entire time. I tend to do so. I tend to like... Like all of my alcohol beverages, cool. Um, I, I, you know, I, I like the flavor, the feel of of a colder beverage. Um, now, certainly, if I'm making a mold wine, you want it to be warm. You know, you actually want it to 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 feel like something that's warm and and, and you know, extravagant in, in 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 your mouth. So, temperature has an impact. It's just that I think that people shouldn't fuss so much over it. You ever put ice cubes
1: in your wine? Hell yeah. <laughs> So, you do doing it right up. You know, I'm because not doing it today. Very few but people do. I, I you know, they think that's a great, uh, great crime against humanity. No, I do
2: not. I, I think that if if a wine is, uh, here's the story I'll tell on that one. Is some years ago at the Oregon Pinot Noir celebration, I was sitting with some of the most famous Burgundian winemakers on the planet. The temperature outside was 105. The wines were too warm, and and when I saw. Okay, I'll say his name: Dominique Lafon, one of the greatest winemakers on the planet. Drop an ice cube in his Pinot Noir. I looked at him and, I was like, and he he gave me the you know the French look, like, mm. you know, gave me the mm. and I was like, yeah, me too. Heck with it, you know. So <laughs> it's it's like and then the joke I always make is, hey, winemakers put water in your wine anyway. What the hell's problem with it being cold?
1: Carlos, you ever put uh, ice cube in your wine? I have. In fact,
3: my strategy lately is, my neighbor had a sale across the street. I bought a Marriott ice bucket from them that they had obviously stolen from some hotel. I keep that downstairs
1: now with ice in it for my wine. So what you paid money for a bucket that someone had stolen anyway, you you knew that. (laughs) That's the bigger question here. Will you you ever put an ice cube in your wine, Elizabeth?
4: I do. I'm a, I'm a big white drinker. And during summer, you know, I love it just, you know, I, it just, Cools the glass, cools the wine, and is, makes it more refreshing for me to drink.
1: Yeah. Robin from Loveland, Colorado. Robin, you're a long way from Kansas City, but it's great to have you.
4: I am. I'm from Kansas City, so I still listen to the station. I'm go- I
1: appreciate that.
4: Yes. I had a question about Kansas wines, what you think about Kansas wines and which ones you prefer?
2: Well, I did a shout out earlier for Holyfield. Um, there are a number of good people, you know, doing good work uh, now, like Somerset Ridge and such. So th- there, um, there are a lot of wineries. You know, we're at, I think three dozen wineries now in Kansas. Mm. So I, I hate to only name you know a couple, but uh, uh, those two that I, I named uh, certainly do good work. There's Stone Pillar. There's uh, uh, you know the, the blue jacket crossing uh, there's borgmont there's there's definitely people that are are worth seeking out and the fact that you're in colorado i hope that you've been checking out colorado wines as well the 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 uh, uh, you know, area around Paonia in, in uh, Western Colorado is doing fantastic work. They're really at at the the mercy of the weather out there. So they deal with a lot of freeze events, but I am one of the judges at the Colorado state wine competition. And it's one of the few uh, competitions I still judge at because I really like what's going on in Colorado. And I've found a lot of cool wine out there. Wow. Well,
4: I definitely, I need to check some wines out there. Yes. I have actually that has a vineyard. In Westmoreland mm-hmm. at Red Rock Hill. I uh, don't know. It's New York.
2: I haven't tasted so. the wines from Red Rock Hill yet, so I'll look forward to it. Thanks, on, Robin. Lord.
1: Happy holidays you. to you. Thank you. You as well. What's happening just globally in the wine market right now? Are sales up? Flat? What are we looking at? What's, what's the trend?
2: Sales are flat at best. Um, what, hmm. what, the trend that we're really seeing is that the, the fantastic expansion of wine consumption that has taken place over the last quarter century and more is probably at an end. Um, one, people drink less alcohol. As, as I said before, about a third of Americans don't drink alcohol at all. Is that and number going up? Uh, it is. It is going up. I'm not sure where you know this goes. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how this, uh, uh, you know, what the next phase looks like. But what has saved the wine industry up to now is that people spend more money. They drink less wine, but they spend more money. So the sales have continued to go up when you look at the dollar volumes. But even that is flattening out now. So I, th- I think what we're looking at is, is a world in which there are just so many choices for what you want to drink that wine is merely one amongst many.
1: Hmm. i also was curious before we lose our time here about how you go about reviewing and critiquing your own wines as a guy who critiques wines for a living is that especially tricky you have any bias creeping in when you when you go about doing that well that's the funny part about it as as a
2: critic you try to keep your biases at least visible uh you know to pretend that you have none is foolish to me it's best to, to keep them out in front of you and in front of the reader so that they can say well this is a guy that you know thinks wines that have of higher acidity is really delicious I don't so you know I'm turning the page yeah you know to tell people that up front when when you are, are trying to make your own wine suddenly you're focused upon that bias how can I best fulfill that bias how can I make the very best wine I can and so I have in fact I have a friend who uh, wrote a review of one of my wines who said you know I really appreciate Doug and I like these wines but they don't have enough oomph and I, I cracked up I thought okay my next label is going to be oomph uh, you <laughs> <laughs> you no know, it's like that, that's what it, but then i also thought i'm 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 a little angry you know it's like you, you can't help it but feel like somebody's insulted your children mm-hmm. on the other hand it's almost like, well, that's what I was going for. I'm trying to make wines that are more nuanced and more elegant. And and oomph to me most of the time means alcohol. And and we're trying to make wines that have slightly lower alcohols because huh. that's what I want to taste. Right. And I, I I it sounds like a joke, but it's not, you know, far from the truth as I told my business partner when we started this thing. We better like the wines we make because we may have to drink them all. And 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 so yeah, you know, that's the thing. You make wines that you like when you're making your own wine.
1: You know, Carlos Doug said a little while ago that his sisters come coming up from florida he has to have beer on hand for the holidays what are you looking forward to drinking this holiday uh, vacation here uh we're gonna drink we're gonna sample some um some pinot noir
3: and uh, you know because that's one of our favorites my wife likes uh chardonnays but i'm gonna fight her to get a few more pinot noirs into the house
1: yeah okay elizabeth what are you doing uh, my dad yet. loves
4: a cocktail called the Last Word. Um oh, it has no. green chartreuse in it and a maraschino cherry and it looks like Christmas in a glass. <laughs> it's
1: a delicious <laughs> Not cocktail. Not bad.
4: Yeah. Hallie?
0: Well, I might actually have to try another eggnog. You know, I've been very staunch. I was speaking yesterday about how, you know, I was, you know, I have to pretend that I liked the eggnog, but now I might have to try another one for real.
1: <laughs> Well, Doug, it's always great to have you here. Happy holidays. Happy Uh, holidays. You make holidays better around here every time you come. We all appreciate it. Thank you so much. Again, Doug Frost, Master of Wine, Master Sommelier. And uh, by all means, happy holidays to all our listeners. This program is produced by Zach Wilson, Elizabeth Ruiz, Claudia Brancart, and Hallie Jackson. Uh, Elizabeth Herb is leaving us after today. And Elizabeth, thank you for everything you did for us. Much appreciated. You, Steve. What a way to go out. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Paul Nakatura is our announcer and engineer our theme music was composed by the great bobby watson i'm steve kraske happy holidays to all we'll see you in the new year have a great one everyone and uh, we'll see you in about a week or so